Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. We have a great show in store for you today, so I hope you'll stay with us for the entire hour. And we're going to begin speaking about and learning about one of my favorite, well, one of America's favorite animals, the eagle. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Peter and I volunteer our time and efforts to bring you interesting and timely stories, news, and features from around the world each week. And there's always something worth talking about in the world of animal rights and animal welfare. I want to remind you to join us on Facebook, where we post each show on the Advancing the Interests of Animals page. And please join the discussion there. You can also go to animalstodayradio.com to listen. And of course, you can go to iTunes, and I encourage you to subscribe to Animals Today there. Now, on to the Eagles. One reason we are into them today is that June 20th is American Eagle Day. That's right. American Eagle Day commemorates the anniversary of the bald eagle as our nation's national symbol. And although the day is widely celebrated, it's not yet an official national holiday. That's the goal of the American Eagle Foundation to make a national holiday to recognize the bald eagle. Oh, by the way, we're also going to be speaking about the golden eagle. So don't worry that the other North American eagle is being neglected. One fun thing to do on American Eagle Day, in addition to listening to animals today, is checking out one of the many eagle cams online. So interesting to get up close and watch them raise their young and bring food back to the nest. Hey, Lori, and you know, when I think about bald eagles, I always go back to the founding fathers and how the eagle became our national symbol. Do you ever wonder about that? And I remember this story about Ben Franklin about him wanting the turkey to become part of the national seal or the national animal of the newly formed nation. And, you know, I wanted to find out if that was true or not. So I'll tell you what I learned in a moment. But, you know, after the Declaration of Independence was signed, the Continental Congress gave the job of designing an official seal. You need a seal, new country, to uh, Benjamin Franklin Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. And they failed their initial attempts to create a seal. And finally, the task was given to a gentleman named Charles Thompson. He was the Secretary of Congress. And Thompson looked at some of the prior renderings and pulled some of the elements. And in particular, he got rid of a little white eagle that they had in one of the previous renderings. And added the American bald eagle. And right away, this new drawing, and we'll post the neat drawing that he sketched, and you'll see the American bald eagle and its first inclusion on our national seal. And then the official seal was created from that, and you will recognize it today with the eagle with its outstretched wings, the shield on its chest. And you know, Lori, do you know what the eagle is grasping? In one talon he's got the 13 arrows right and in the other an olive branch even though we look at this symbol many times every day would you have remembered exactly that little factoid anyway here's the deal on franklin my research finds that franklin made no vocal or written objection to the bald eagle becoming part of the national seal but there's a letter he wrote to his daughter after the seal was adopted and he writes for my own part, I wish the bald eagle had not been chosen representative of our country. He is a bird of bad moral character. 
He does not get his living honestly. He may have seen him perched on some dead tree near the river where, too lazy to fish for himself, he watches the labor of the fishing hawk. And when that diligent bird has at length taken a fish and is bearing it to his nest for the support of his mate and his young ones, the bald eagle pursues him and takes it from him. And then he continues, the turkey is in comparison a much more respectable bird and withal a true original native of America. So that is from Ben Franklin himself in a letter to his daughter. And uh, he liked the turkey. Oh, and one more thing I wanted to add. Did you know there's a reverse of our official seal? And that is the drawing that has the unfinished pyramid and the zenith eye. There's a lot of speculation as to where this came from, but there is a reverse and you can see it on some of our currency. Anyway, I'll post all this so you can see these examples. There's a lot of interesting things uh, written about our great seal. Now back to the bald eagle. Uh, Bald eagle is one of two eagle species in North America, two main ones, the other being the golden eagle. The uh, bald eagle was very prevalent at the onset of the United States, but it was not really uh, thought of very highly. The uh, settlers uh, saw the bird as competing for natural resources, taking their fish, messing around with their livestock, and consequently they killed the eagles and they also killed them for sport. Native Americans trapped and killed the eagles and used the feathers for ceremonial purposes. It's thought that before European settlement, there were up to a half a million bald eagles across North America. And get this, as late as the mid-1800s, eagles in the winter were reportedly seen in Central Park in Manhattan. They had caught their fish in the nearby rivers and brought them to the park to munch on them. But the eagle populations continued dwindling and dwindling and... Ultimately, it was recognized that some legislation was needed, and in 1940, Congress passed the Bald Eagle Protection Act. This outlawed killing and disturbing of eagles, and you were not allowed to possess parts of eagles, including nests, eggs, and feathers. However, this uh, act was really not strictly enforced. The hunting, which included bounty hunting, was made worse by the introduction of the pesticide DDT, And there is some controversy exactly about how DDT worked to harm the eagle populations. But either way, the populations really, really shrunk. And of course, Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring, that was published in 1962. And ultimately, the pesticide was banned in the U.S. in 1972. A survey in 1963 found only 417 nesting pairs of bald eagles in the entire lower 48 states. Fortunately, the comeback of the bald eagle is one of the great conservation stories in history. Due to uh, enforcement of the Endangered Species Act, captive breeding, and a recognition that we really need to support the species, they have uh, come back and now can be found widely, as well as in Mexico, Canada, and Alaska. In fact, they are no longer considered endangered. Laura, you remember when we saw those eagles when we were in Alaska a few years ago? I sure do. I fortunately had my new telephoto lens and 
took some great pictures. It helps to be able to en enlarge them when you're not really a professional photographer. And I will post them also on, on the website. I wanted to add, there are still some threats to uh, bald eagles. Uh, they include illegal shooting. Who would do that is considered the biggest threat to their safety. Also, another threat includes lead poisoning from lead shot, which is used to shoot ducks, which the eagles then uh, eat, power lines, habitat loss, and of course, those wind farms. Peter, that's so informative. Thank you. Yeah, who doesn't love the bald eagle? That's right. Lori, recently in the news, there have been a number of really sad stories about the effects of xylitol, particularly when dogs are eating xylitol. They get very sick and sometimes die. And in fact, the FDA has just released a consumer health information bulletin talking about xylitol and dogs. And you can review this at fda.gov slash consumer. But it's a pretty comprehensive uh, warning about all the foods that contain xylitol, including chewing gum. And I'm going to talk about the specific brands of gum in just a minute, so you can be aware of that. But the xylitol is really dangerous to dogs. You know why? Because it causes a strong release of insulin from the pancreas in dogs, but not in people. And this causes profound decrease in blood sugar, and that can come on in just a few minutes and can be life-threatening. Symptoms of xylitol poisoning in dogs includes vomiting and then decreased activity, weakness, staggering, incoordination, collapse, and seizures, and death. So if you even think your dog has eaten xylitol, you want to bring him or her to the vet or animal hospital immediately. Even before showing these symptoms. Even before. And they may want to keep your dog there for 12 to 24 hours to monitor to make sure this uh, doesn't occur. And you know, interestingly, Cats really don't care to eat xylitol, so it's not really a problem with, with them. So what are some of the foods containing xylitol? Well, the items, I'll say, are some sugar-free candies, uh, toothpaste. Some human toothpaste contains xylitol, so you don't want to let your dog near that. And that's the other reason why you don't want to brush your dog's teeth with human toothpaste, by the way. Mouthwash, some nut butters. That's a new thing. Some of these nut butters have added xylitol for sweetness. But the biggest offender appears to be chewing gum. So don't let your dog near chewing gum. And mints too, right, Peter? Yeah, you bet. Some sugar-free mints are sweetened with xylitol. So here are some of the gum brands that contain xylitol. Spry gum, Epic gum, Miradent, Trident and Trident Fusion with xylitol, Trident Extra Care, Icebreakers, Ice Cube, Sugar-Free, and Zelly's Xylitol Gum. So be careful. Don't let your dogs near any of those products. You know, you make a good point, too, because a lot of people think it's okay to brush their dog's teeth with human toothpaste, and it's not because of the fact that many of the toothpaste do contain xylitol. In addition, people think, well, my dog has bad breath, so I'm going to have my dog drink some mouthwash. Well, that could be dangerous as well. And finally, this is interesting news about the nut butters, Peter, because a lot of people think that, you know, any of the peanut butters, they're safe for dogs, and they may not be. So look at the labels. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio, and I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. 
If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love animals today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. back to animals today. Peter, you gave a nice historical perspective on the bald eagle. Thank you so much. I thought we would talk a little more about how eagles live. So bald eagles aren't actually bald, right? They have... I know. I've, that's always interesting. Yeah. White heads. Yeah. The bald eagle is actually one of the largest raptors in the world. The wingspan ranges from 72 to 90 inches, which is about seven feet. Isn't that amazing? Bald eagles sit at the top of the food chain. Bald eagles can fly to an altitude of 10,000 feet. And during level flight, they can achieve speeds of about 30 to 35 miles per hour. But when bald eagles attack their prey, they swoop down on them at an angle where they can reach speeds up to 100 miles per hour when diving. That's incredible. For such a large, heavy animal. I That's know. incredible. And 10,000 feet. I would have never guessed that they can get up that high. That's yeah. amazing. Bald eagles have 7,000 feathers. 7,000. That's yeah. a lot more than I would have guessed also. And who would bother to count the feathers <laughs> no. on a bald eagle? Bald eagles can live 20 to 30 years in the wild. Mm. And do you know what a baby bald eagle is called? Mm. Not an eaglet? Yes. Bald eagles eat mainly fish, but they will take advantage of carrion, which is dead and decaying flesh. Yeah, and this is one of the things that got Ben Franklin hot under the collar, it seems. Yes, and all eagles are renowned for their excellent eyesight. So I guess that's where the phrase eagle eye comes from. Mm -hmm. At around four or five years old, bald eagles will choose a mating partner through a courtship procedure. The courtship includes numerous calls and aerial displays. Once coupled, the two birds will mate for life. And only in the case where one eagle dies or disappears will the other one find a new mate. And as you mentioned earlier, causes of death of the bald eagle, fatal gunshot wounds, electrocution, poisoning, collisions with vehicles, lead ammunition, and starvation. Mm. And Lori, I just want to mention the impact on the bald eagle population from the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill. Do you remember that? Yeah. Well, about 247 eagles were thought to have been killed from the oil exposure. The population levels uh, decreased somewhat, not too much, and bounced back by 1995. But still, the eagles don't like oil. No birds like oil. Peter, there are over 60 different species of eagle. But as you mentioned, the bald eagle and the golden eagle are the only ones in North America. So I thought I would talk a minute or two about the difference between the two. First of all, all eagles have excellent eyesight. Both the bald eagle and golden eagle are top predators of the food webs. 
So what's the difference between bald eagle and golden eagle? Bald eagles are endemic to North America, whereas golden eagles are found everywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. The bald eagle is larger than the golden eagle in their sizes. Bald eagles have white color feathers on the head and the tail, whereas golden eagles have golden bordered feathers around the head and the back of the neck. Now the beak of the bald eagle is slightly larger compared to the bill of the golden eagle. Mm. The beak is completely yellow colored in bald eagles, whereas it's dark at the tip and the rest is yellow in golden eagles. Bald eagles prefer fish to others, but golden eagles feed on small mammals as well. The United States, as you clearly explained to us, chose the bald eagle as its national symbol. The people of Mexico adopted the golden eagle as their national symbol. Oh, oh! I never thought about that, but thinking about their currency, yeah, of course. And Lori, the golden eagle, its populations have been more steady than the bald eagle. They were not susceptible or not as susceptible to DDT as the bald eagles were. That's probably because they don't consume fish. They consume mammals as their primary food. So the DDT does not get concentrated in those little mammals like it does in in the fish. The golden eagle was also protected by the 1962 Act. And so these days, the main threats and the main cause of deaths to golden eagles are from human impact, such as collisions with vehicles, wind turbines and other structures, electrocution and things like that. So, Lori, do you think the Founding Fathers made a good choice in retrospect by choosing the bald eagle to be on our national seal, even though now we know the bald eagle steals the food of other animals, eats dead animals, and has low moral character? You still think the bald eagle was a good choice? I do. Franklin didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) They have high moral character. They're very ethical birds. I think you're right. One of... Franklin's missteps. Peter, you know what the first thing that pops up when you do a Google search on eagles? The band? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I I figured. (laughs) But that's a good point because eagles, whether they're the band or the bird, the idea of the eagle is just everywhere in our American culture. And I perhaps in Mexican and other cultures too, but so many products are designed or named after eagles, the connection with excellent vision, we always hear about that. I mean, eagles are everywhere in our culture, on our currency. They're, eagles are everywhere. Yes, it's pretty rewarding when your patients tell you that you've given them the eyes of an eagle. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. Have you seen the cartoons of the great seal being modified to give it a Trump-style bald head instead? No. So there's a, a, now there's a golden hair on our bald eagle in cartoons. Oh, they're going to ruin our emblem. And major support for Animals Today Radio comes from International Society for Animal Rights. For decades, ISAR has been a world leader in the battle against dog and cat overpopulation and its moral, social, and economic costs. Please visit their website at www.isaronline.org. China has agreed to shut down its commercial ivory trade. That's right. By the end of 2017, trading ivory will no longer be legal anywhere in the country. This piece of wonderful news was brought about by a lot of pressure over a long time, including the investment of more than $3 million for an ad campaign by the group WildAid, featuring Yao Ming, basketball player. 
A number of factors led to the Chinese taking this action, including their desire to strengthen their relationships with Africa. It became clear that they could no longer say this is just an African problem when the biggest world market is indeed in China, where carving of the ivory is a fine art, and also where ivory is used to fuel a lot of corrupt activities. The president of China is trying very hard to root out government corruption. So overall, it's really good for the Chinese image and obviously good for the elephants. So the country of Japan will be the only country where ivory trade will be permitted. So that is our next target. You're listening to Animals Today. Hi, it's Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of Animals Today Radio. And I'd like to invite you to join me each week right here for the latest animal news from around the globe. From animals in the wild to animals on farms and in agriculture to our beloved dogs and cats, Animals Today tackles the important issues about their welfare and rights while promoting compassion and respect for all living creatures. And yes, Animals Today is your home for a serious talk about animals, but there's big doses of fun and adventure for everyone. If you want to know what you can do to help tigers in the wild, or whether your family should adopt a tortoise, or why you should avoid buying puppies from pet stores, you will love Animals Today. So make sure to join us on this station each week. Visit us at animalstodayradio.com, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, and join the discussion on Facebook. Thanks for listening. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute. Because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Last year, I spoke with bee expert Michelle Colopy about the use of a new pesticide, sulfoxiflor. Its approval for use was challenged because there was not enough safety data, and the courts held up its approval and sent the matter back to the EPA for further study with public and industry input. I think you'll find her comments about pesticides, bees, and pollinators fascinating. And at the end of the segment, I'll tell you what the EPA recently decided about sulfoxiflor. A few weeks ago, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals concluded that the EPA violated federal law when it approved the insecticide sulfoxiflor. And this is important because of its relationship to honeybees. And the uh, conclusion was that uh, the possible impact was not studied enough to make this uh, ruling. So we wanted to talk about uh, honeybees. And we are very pleased to have Michelle Colopy, who is program director of the Pollinator Stewardship Council Incorporated. Welcome, Michelle. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. Michelle, give us a little background on what led to the Court of Appeals making this ruling? Uh, the the uh, Sufoxaflor case that we filed in the Ninth Circuit Court, we addressed that simply because it is a highly toxic pesticide to bees. When uh, EPA registered the pesticide in their appro- own approval document, they stated they didn't have enough research on long-term studies, 
that the research that was done and submitted by the manufacturer only uh, encompassed 14 days in the life, life of this little organism, and that EPA acknowledged it was going to be highly toxic and harmful to honeybees. So we basically took EPA's own words and we went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and we asked the judge, could you please review the registration documents because EPA is saying they did not have enough information, yet they still went ahead and registered this pesticide. Now, sufoxiflor is a class within the neonicotinoid uh, class of pesticides, which is highly toxic to bees. It's a systemic pesticide that when it is applied as a foliar application uh, in any manner, actually, if it's a soil drench, if it's a seed coating, that it is exuded through the pollen and nectar of the plant. Yeah. The insecticide comes up through the pollen and nectar of the plant, and the bee is exposed to this highly toxic pesticide. So we asked the Ninth Circuit Court to review EPA's registration, and they did review it. We were quite pleased with the outcome that the judges agreed with actually EPA's own words. They did not have enough research. So that sufoxiflor registration has been vacated and mm -hmm. remanded back to EPA so that within 45 days after the Ninth Circuit Court ruling, sufoxiflor will be illegal to use until the manufacturer completes new studies. Um, so, so they kind of have to redo some of that registration process. And are you confident that even when that's done, it still will be deemed to be not a safe agent? Well, it, certainly we know that it's be toxic the way that uh, EPA mitigates risk of so many toxic pesticides, because neonicotinoid pesticides are not the only pesticide that is toxic to bees. There are thousands of highly toxic pesticides to bees. They mitigate the risk of harm through the label, mm -hmm. through how the product oh is used. Yeah. The issue then becomes of the standard practices beyond the label direction. Uh, so that is sometimes the biggest weakness is people don't follow direction. Um, the products are used too much instead of truly when there is a pest uh, in the field. Yeah. So certainly, like in uh, veterinary science, you're not giving an antibiotic to the cat every day because then the cat builds up a resistance and then so do any of the um, viruses and things that might infect the cat. So it's the same with insecticides. You don't want to apply them prophylactically because then you build up resistance. But that is what is happening with so many pesticides. The insects are building up resistance, so we create these stronger and stronger pesticides, but when we continue to use them prophylactically, mm that's when resistance builds up. So while sufoxiflor is a tool for some pests when there is a major outbreak and that farmer needs to protect their crop. Gotcha. However, there are ways to do it when you, where you can protect the pollinator and eradicate the pest. And it's communication, it's following the directions on the label, but truly using it when there is a pest. Last year, there was a lot of talk in the popular press, and we covered this also about bee populations under pressure and really dying off. Is that process still happening? It is. And certainly, you know, there is, there's so many sound bites you'll get in the media, whether there's a bee catastrophe or a bee Armageddon. And bees are suffering and have been suffering 
from exposure to pesticides, but they've also been suffering from a loss of forage or pesticides uh, tainting their forage. They're also suffering under pests and pathogens. And when you pile on on any creature four different things that are impacting their immune system, when you throw on one extra thing, their immune system can't cope. So bees have been able to cope with the varroa mite, which was introduced in the 80s. They have been able to deal with, and they come to kind of a a happy threshold level of where they can survive and the mite might still be uh, bothering them. But when you throw on pesticides and poor nutrition, then the varroa and the diseases that varroa mite spread can impact the bees much more greatly. So if we could reduce our pesticide exposure on our pollinators Mm -hmm. and increase their forage and make that quality forage, our bees would be so much healthier. We are almost at a status quo where we are breeding the same level of bees. Bees don't live very long. They're about a 90-day insect. But they're constantly breeding new bees to replace the ones that die off. The issue becomes when we can't replace the bees fast enough in a colony. So that if you have an acute kill of bees because they're pollinating a crop and pesticides were applied during the bloom on the crop and it kills the adult foraging force, then you've cut off a third of the population of that hive. Yeah. These are the stressors the bees are under. They're under such tremendous stressors. So there is no one thing causing their demise. There is no one pesticide causing problems for them. It's a combination of pesticides and uh, diseases that is, and lack of quality nutrition that is impacting honeybees so greatly. So has the decreased population affected the production of food? I mean, people, many people don't realize how important the bees are in bringing food to their table. Are we seeing an impact uh, yet? Um, Not yet. We have been maintaining a status quo for about six years or so. When uh, the neonicotinoid pesticides did come on the market, the bees started to encounter them slowly but surely across many crops. And now the the neonics are used on so many crops in in the bees' environment. And this systemic pesticide is just this kind of extra whammy because the pesticide is exuded through the pollen and nectar of the plant. So... We're maintaining the status quo right now, and it, it really just, it depends on what happens in one crop. There was in 2014, there was this huge bee kill in almonds uh, due to actually a tank mix of a, of a variety of pesticides. There was an insecticide, there was a fungicide, uh, and they were combined together and sprayed in an orchard. We lost 80,000 bee colonies. Mm, yeah. And what happened then is what happened in almonds affected the next crop because there were less bees to pollinate that next crop. I think it went to apples and then cherries. So we have to keep in mind that if we damage bees in one crop, we reduce the amount of honeybees to pollinate the next crop. So we are maintaining this very tight, narrow status quo that if we would suddenly affect and kill off 200,000 or 500,000 hives in one or two crops, it will greatly impact the rest of the crops in the remaining growing season. So we don't want to be at that tight uh, a supply with our honeybees. So when one farmer needs bees for a crop, that farmer needs to remember those bees need to stay healthy in his crop so the next farmer has healthy bees to pollinate the next crop. Yeah. 
What is pollinator stewardship? That's part of your organization's name. What, what, what does that mean? Well, certainly pollinator stewardship is protecting and being good stewards of all of the pollinators, not just honeybees, but our native bees, our butterflies. We've all heard how the monarch butterflies are suffering now due to a loss of uh, forage, a loss of milkweed, a loss of food along their migratory routes from Canada to, uh, from Mexico to Canada. So it is being good stewards and realizing that all of the creatures, especially at the bottom of the food chain, the insects especially, which actually supports so much of the rest of the food chain, that we must be good stewards and make sure that they have food, that they have habitat, and that they can do the job they are here to do, which for pollinators, it is pollinating one-third of humans' food supply, as well as pollinating our wildlands, pollinating the food for our animals, whether it's our grazing animals, um, wild animals. They are integral to a balanced ecosystem. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not just insects. It's also hummingbirds. Uh, some bats are also pollinators. So we must protect and be good stewards to realize we can all coexist. We can protect our crops from pests and protect pollinators. We can protect our pollinators and protect public health from mosquito-borne diseases. We can do all of this if we work together, communicate with each other, and realize that we need to be good stewards of the ecosystem so that there is that balance for the health of the ecosystem and our food supply. So after study, the EPA concluded that sulfoxiflor is safer for bees and other pollinators. It works against pests that are becoming resistant to the older insecticides. Sulfoxiflor specifically targets insects that often carry viral and bacterial diseases, which can cause infections that would result in complete loss of important high-value crops and trees. The registration is for fewer crops than were allowed under the previous registration. For those crops that attract bees, the EPA will restrict the application to post-bloom and will not allow use on crops grown for seed. And of course, you can read more about this on the EPA website. The EPA also determined that when used according to the label requirements, the insecticide is safe for everyone, including infants, children, and agricultural workers. Also, the following label restrictions are required to minimize spray drift and potential exposure of bees foraging on plants adjacent to treated fields. First, the applications must be made with medium to coarse spray nozzles. Application is prohibited if wind speeds exceed 10 miles an hour, and a 12-foot on-field downwind buffer is required if there's any blooming vegetation bordering the treated field. So there's our pollinator and pesticide update. More animals today after the break. back to the show. There is so much in the news, Lori, I want to share with you, okay? Yeah. Okay, let's start with this. In Kenya, they are still, as you know, fighting those poachers who are killing those elephants. New technology called wiper ballistic shockwave sensors. This is developed by 
researchers at Vanderbilt University and Colorado State. They are being integrated, these sensors, into third-party tracking collars of these elephants. There's like a thousand of them wearing these collars. And these sensors are able to detect and then report when a shockwave happens, like from a bullet going by, going past the elephant or hitting the elephant. And this is very important in finding out where those poachers are and then homing in on them really quickly. Oh, that's so cool. And currently the poachers, well, they're using noise suppression technology, silencers on their rifles to try to decrease, but this they will not be able to really defend. So hopefully this will be another strong method to determine where the poachers are and round them up and take care of them. Oh, that'd be so great. Yeah, it will be great. You know, Save the Elephants estimated that about 100,000 elephants were killed for their tusks between 2010 and 2012 alone. Okay, Lori, here's a little bat news. It's been discovered that bats are a major reservoir of coronaviruses around the world. A big study out of Columbia University looked at many, many of those flying rats that we call bats. We've covered bats before. They're not so bad. Anyway... They are a reservoir for coronaviruses, and coronaviruses, as you know, include common cold viruses, but also include the SARS virus, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome virus, that can kill three to four out of 10 people who get infected. So that's worth knowing how they get from bats, if they do, to people. And also the MERS virus, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus, that's not quite as bad. But still, this discovery of where all these coronaviruses are hanging out is uh, very important. And how do they get from the bats to people if they do? Now, does that make you feel better or worse about bats? I don't know. More research needed, as they say. And here's a story I really like. I don't know if you've seen any of these videos, but it's really neat. And it has to do with keeping the birds away from the planes around airports and airfields. We're all familiar with that amazing bird strike and the landing on the Hudson that happened a few years ago. And that was caused by birds flying into the engines of a jetliner. Well, how do you keep birds away from airfields? The current technology involves loud sounds and other sorts of scary devices. But it turns out the birds habituate very quickly to these things and they don't really mind them at all. So this is where technology comes into play. And what we're seeing now are robotic falcon birds, robots, drone birds, controlled remotely, that are flying around, flapping their wings. They look just like falcons, and they're about to be deployed at Edmonton International Airport, which is Canada's largest airport in terms of surface area. And they're going to be testing these robots. They call them robirds for about three months and see if they can scare away the birds away from the airfield area. That is incredible. And you should see the videos of these devices. They are not, there's no propeller. They're just flapping their wings. It's like Da Vinci would be amazed by this, wouldn't he? Row birds. I love it. Yeah. So the company that makes these is called Clear Flight Solutions. And they say that a combination of the silhouette of the row bird, which looks just like a bird of prey, and the wing movement are the things that cue the other birds to get out of the way. So we'll see how this goes. I think it has a great potential. Now, 
I didn't mean to imply that this is going to prevent bird strikes some distance away from the airfield, such as the one that we talked about earlier. But you need to keep animals away from the airports. And look how many animals' lives you'll be saving if this works. That's right. Great technology. And bad news for chimpanzees Tommy and Kiko. They will remain in their current state of imprisonment because the appeal led by Stephen Wise and the Non-Human Rights Project in New York State to seek greater legal status for these captive chimps and others fail. Unfortunately, the decision went 5-0 against them. And Justice Troy Weber said in his opinion, the asserted cognitive and linguistic capabilities of chimpanzees do not translate to a chimpanzee's capacity or ability, like humans, to bear legal duties or to be held legally accountable for their actions. And that pretty much was the bottom line. The court is just not ready to take that step at this point in history. There was a statement released by the Non-Human Rights Project, and they are going to continue by filing an appeal. Stephen Wise has mentioned in the past he acknowledges this is a long journey, and this ruling is not necessarily a loss in his eyes, but just a step in the process. He, by the way, has been working on this for 30 years. And Peter, by this you mean he's been trying to achieve greater legal rights for non-human animals for 30 years. That's right. Lori, in Australia, they are trying to deal with the issue of feral cats, which are all over the interior of the continent and decimating the natural small mammal population there. Aren't they shooting feral cats in Australia? Well, I don't know exactly what they're doing so far, but feral cats are not a favorite among many Australians. Let me put it that way. And one conservation group is trying to do something productive, and their goal is to enclose an area of about 170,000 acres with a large fence to keep the feral cats out. Now, they also are going to kill and trap some of the cats as they start this project. But the goal is to provide a large natural sanctuary so some of their small native animals can hopefully repopulate the area. These animals include the numbat. Do you know what that is? That is the banded anteater. It's really cute. They're pretty small. And also the black-footed rock wallaby. Other animals that are hopefully going to bounce back include the Western quoll, which is a little marsupial, the brush-tailed betong, which is also referred to as the wily, I think I'm saying that right, and the bilby, which is the rabbit bandicoots. These are all cute little, almost pocket-sized mammals. They look sort of a little rodent-like or like, like a little wallaby or something like that, and the cats just hunt them. We've seen similar video of this. Remember when we talked about the fence that they're building in Hawaii and they've got video of the cats going into the nesting burrows of these birds and just pulling them out and destroying them. And I imagine that's what the cats are doing to these little guys. So that's the project. It's being run by Australian Wildlife Conservancy. And there are 10 threatened species they're trying to protect give you an update on that. It does involve shooting cats. Right. There has to be more humane ways to control the cat population there. 
Okay, Peter, thanks for those great stories. You are awesome. And thank you for listening to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. <laughs>